CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. This is Ricky Bird, and you're listening to Talking Rock. Hey, guys, before we get into the show, I just want to tell you what's going on with tonight's episode. It is not a Talking Metal episode. I know you're thinking, what the hell? I'm listening to the Talking Metal podcast. This should be a Talking Metal episode. Well, no, it's not. As some of you may know, we've expanded Talking Metal. It's now going to be, Talking Metal is going to be a podcasting network, an internet radio stream that you can listen to 24-7. And on the podcasting network side of things, we are going to have a family of podcasts. One of those podcasts is Talking Metal, which you get through this RSS feed or this iTunes feed. One of the other podcasts is Mars Attacks, which has its own separate RSS feed. And one of the other podcasts is Talking Rock. And what we're going to do here tonight is give you a sample, a listen to a Talking Rock episode. Talking Rock is something that John and I have done for a while, although we haven't done one for a couple years, and we are relaunching it here tonight on the Talking Metal feed and also on the Talking Rock feed. So you normally aren't going to hear Talking Rock episodes on this podcast feed. However, since it's kind of our relaunch of the Talking Rock podcast, we thought it would be fun to give you guys on the Talking Metal feed uh, a listen to Talking Rock. And if you like it, you can listen to more episodes, which are coming soon, by going to iTunes and subscribing to the Talking Rock podcast. So stay tuned for the relaunch of Talking Rock here on Talking Metal tonight. And guys, as you know, Talking Metal is sponsored by Hulu Plus. What a great service. I can honestly say I've been using it a ton myself since the sponsorship started here on Talking Metal. And one cool thing my wife and I have been doing is, you know, our kids get up at like 6.30, 7 at the latest every day. So we don't really sleep in much in this household. And my wife and I, we love the Jon Stewart show, The Daily Show. And we just can't stay up until 11 o'clock here, East Coast time, that is, to watch the Jon Stewart show every single night. Sometimes we'll push it and stay up, but usually, usually not. So the thing that is awesome about Hulu Plus for for my wife and I, again, big fans of The Daily Show, is that we get to watch The Daily Show a day late 
you know, at our own convenience, usually like at 9.30 or something after our kids go to bed. And we watch it, uh, we watch the day, the episode that was on the day before at that time using the great service of Hulu Plus. And that is one of literally hundreds, if not thousands of shows that Hulu Plus offers. So definitely do yourself a favor, do us a favor, and go to TalkingMetal.com and use the Hulu Plus banner to take you to Hulu Plus, and you can get a two-week free trial membership on Talking Metal. So if if nothing else, guys, just go take advantage of that free two-week trial because it's going to show Hulu Plus that Talking Metal is... Uh, is a decent and worthy place for them to put their money and for them to uh, continue the sponsorship. So keep talking metal alive by treating yourself to a free trial of Hulu Plus. to the Talking Rock Podcast, part of the Talking Metal Digital Network. Now, here are your hosts, Mark and John. That was a little sound sample of Married Man from the brand new album Lifer by Ricky Bird. Hey, welcome to another edition of Talking Rock, the relaunch of the Talking Rock Podcast. Here's Mark Striegel. Hey guys, we are very excited to, as John said, relaunch the Talking Rock podcast with Ricky Bird today. Distinguished and uh, real important guitar player, which if you haven't heard of him, you're going to hear all about him today. He's got a great new record out. He has done great work going way back. You know, even I Love Rock and Roll, one of the biggest selling albums of the uh, early 1980s. He was a big part of that album with Joan Jett. And uh, we're going to focus on what he's up to today on this episode of Talking Rock. But uh, if you don't know his stuff, definitely take some time to familiarize yourself with Ricky Bird. He is definitely a force to be reckoned with. Absolutely. I caught up with Ricky at the Gibson Guitars showroom. Ricky, of course, is a huge Gibson user. Pretty much everything he plays is a Gibson. And he has been someone that I've known for a long time, pretty much since I first moved to New York City. And I uh, got to see him play with uh, many different groups, so, uh, some solo stuff. He's a great acoustic guitar player as well, if you don't know that already. He has done some stuff with a group called The Hit Squad. He's done some stuff solo. He's played with Southside Johnny, Ian Hunter. I mean, the list goes on and on, the credits of Ricky Bird. He's very well respected in the industry. Absolutely. We will have his site linked through today's show notes. Definitely go to, I almost said TalkingRock.com, but here's the deal. It's actually, Talking Rock is actually part of the Talking Metal Digital Podcasting Network. So if you go to TalkingMetalDigital.com or even TalkingMetal.com, you will see a Talking Rock tab that will take you right into uh, a section devoted to this podcast, Talking Rock. 
And it's uh, it's exciting for us to bring this Talking Rock podcast back to you guys. We haven't done anything with it since 2011. And uh, now that we've relaunched it as part of the Talking Metal Digital Network, you are going to see a lot more from Talking Rock. So definitely uh, check out the Talking Rock section of TalkingMetalDigital.com. Absolutely, because there's a lot of artists that we would have loved to interview in the past, but didn't for one reason or the other, mainly because they may not have been, quote, metal. And uh, just because we have started the Talking Metal podcast doesn't mean we don't like other styles of music, including rock and including pretty much everything. But we're going to do Talking Rock and Talking Metal. Yeah, and we already have some interesting characters lined up, a guy named Hugo with the band Tantric, I think is going to be coming on Talking Rock. We may even have Leaf Garrett coming on a future episode. Remember Leaf Garrett? Yeah, absolutely. My old band, Paisley Babylon, opened up for Leaf Garrett a while back at the old Don Hills Great Club. I never knew that. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, Leaf is, of course, he done he did stuff back in the 70s that was kind of disco-esque, but he also did stuff more recently that was definitely rock. I mean, he did a song with the Melvins uh, probably 10, 10 years ago at this point, if not more, but... Um, Definitely a character. He's been uh, been a guy who's uh, struggled with some addiction problems, which have been well documented on uh, TV shows and stuff. But um, I would love to speak with him, and hoping that interview comes through. It sounds like it will, so stay tuned for that. And again, just very excited that Talking Rock is back as part of Talking Metal Digital. There is a live stream on Live 365 for Talking Metal Digital. There is the website, which John recently redesigned. It's looking great. We have Mars Attacks on board with us. We have Talking Metal, of course, and Talking Rock. So let's, uh, let's get into this episode, John. And you want to hear some more music and then get into the interview? Yeah, let's hear a little sound sample from the album Lifer by Ricky Bird. Then we're going to get into the interview that I conducted at the Gibson Guitar Showroom in New York City. So right now, here's the lead-off track from the album. It's called Rock and Roll Boys. Hey, it's John Astronomy. I'm here at the Gibson Guitar Showroom with one of my favorite guitar players. I've known him for many years, Ricky Bird. Ricky, how are you? Good, John. How are you doing today, man? You all right? I'm doing pretty good. We are here to talk about your new solo record. It's called Lifer, and let me tell you, as soon as I put it on, I heard the jack plug in. I thought that was cool. And then I hear the riffs, and immediately I thought, thank God somebody is making the kind of music that I grew up wanting to play and wanting to listen to, and then I listened to the rest of the record, and it is unbelievable. Congratulations on putting out a great record. Thanks, man. I'm getting really great reviews on it. I mean, the, the thing is, 
when I started doing the record, since I was paying for it out of my pocket, then I, I figured I could, you know, eat off the buffet table anything I wanted. So what I wanted to do, basically what I tell everybody, and it's true, it's a love letter to the music that turned me on when I was 13 years old in my parents' apartment. You know, this is the stuff, I mean, it's all original songs, but this is the vibe that I wanted to create, the thing that made the hair go up on my arms when I listened to the first Faces record or, you know, the early Stones records. And that's what it is. It's a love letter, you know? And so either love it or hate it. I mean, that's what I did. I just figured I was going to lead with the truth. And this is... And, you know, anybody that knows me, this is this is me. This is how I play guitar. This is the kind of stuff I love. So why not why not do it? It's rock and roll. There's soul. There's Motown. And you're really right when you say you put everything that you grew up on listening to into this record. Yeah, but and, and with that said, the people that I grew up listening to, when I was... I mean, it's very simple. I'm 14 years old. I'm listening to, uh, you know, FM radio for the first time. Playing al- They're playing album cuts. And the thing that I used to do with my friends um, is I would run into the city every Saturday and we'd hang out in front of Manny's Music. And on the way home, we would take the, you know, we would take the train into the city. We would buy copies of Melody Maker and Sounds. Hence, I would read what uh, you know, Ron Wood listened to growing up or I'd li- li- what, what um, uh, uh, Steve Marriott listened to. And, and that led me – like I wrote, I, I wrote liner notes. Uh, you, do you have the real copy? No, no, I was going to get the real copy today. Yeah, I mean, I took time. I wrote liner notes. I put in great photos, just like the stuff that when we were kids, we would open it up. You'd stare at it and go, someday I'm going to be that guy. So um, as I wrote on the CD, uh, I would read those, – those guys would lead me to the stuff that they grew up on, which was um, Al Green and Otis Redding and Sam Cooke. You know, and, and for, for a kid from the Bronx, I mean, the only way I got to see stuff like that was when I would watch the Ed Sullivan show. If one of those guys were on – then I would be turned on to that music. But all of, basically, except for Mott the Hoople, which is a huge influence for me, and of course I wound up playing with E, and it's, yeah. yeah. Um, Everybody loves, everybody that I love, loved R&B and soul. I mean, the music of America went to England and then repackaged and came back to us. But in, in essence, they taught me about those guys. And that's why there's some of that stuff on the record. It's, it's all part and parcel of the stuff I grew up on. It's great. I want to talk about the different tunes, and I took notes on some of the songs, but I first wanted to just talk about the recording because the recording sounds great, and I know that you did a lot of the guitars, maybe all the guitars, in your basement, yeah. and it's unbelievable, the quality, and I don't even know how you did it. Well, and, and let me say my ex-basement because my studio got destroyed in the hurricane, oh, so man. that's gone. Luckily, we finished the record. I basically – I did the tracks. I mean it's such a long story, but – um I started the record in Nashville in 2001, right after September 11th, with uh, Ray Kennedy. So he's the executive producer. And um, we did only um, – what is on there from that? I don't know if anything wound up on the record from there. In, unless uh, – you know, I can't – now I can't think all of a sudden. But um, we did six tracks in Nashville, and then I would come back, and then I would – you know, get together some more dough, and then I would go down and record with Ray again and do overdubs. And this took me through like 2005. So scheduling and and money woes, you know, it was so expensive to go down there. Um, it it put a hold on everything. And in that time period, I ran into my old friend Bob Stander on Facebook. Bob Stander just actually won a Grammy for a children's record he did, but he's a great engineer, a great producer, and a great player. And funny enough, I mean, it was, it's, it, once again, it's so simple. 
I said, can you come over to my house and show me how to use Pro Tools so I could do demos? He came over to my house. He, I just wrote this song called Foolish Kind. And I said, let's start with this. This will be for my record, you know, uh, but I'd like a demo of it. So we started recording it, and it sounded so good that we, um, we cut the – so the way it would work, he'd come over to my house. I would play to a click track. You know, and I know some people would say, you know, oh, man, you know, but like, you know, it's 2012 and this is the only way I could do my record. So we we I cut the guitars to a click track. We went back to Bob's studio out in Long Island and we put we put the drums on. And he played bass on it. Then we'd come back to my basement, to my studio. And I all my guitars were there. All my amps were there. And I just went crazy. And it was it was like the easiest record of my life. A, you weren't watching the clock. And B, everything was at hand. And, and it's all Gibson guitars. I might have used this, this kind of uh, uh, mad dog Telecaster that I have that's a, like a Fernandez and a Fender neck. With like, it's got like the middle pickup from my 74, or 70, uh, yeah, 74 Blue Sparkleless Paul. Wow. Like that's an, it's like a, just a mad dog that I take out. Everything else is really um, Gibson's. And um, and little uh, I use my '65 Blackface Deluxe and a little Fender Champ amps, early '70s. That's it. I, I think I use my my Blackhearts Marshall on like one thing. Everything is in the bathroom, mic'd. You know, and once again, you need great preamps, great mics, and a great guy that knows what he's doing. So Bob co-produced the majority of the record with me, and he just knew exactly what to do. You know, it's so cool that you said that you did it where you have all your guitars and all your amps. And it's not like you have to say, oh, what am I going to bring to the studio? You're just doing it there. You have everything there. You don't have to watch the clock. And in, in, I, both between what you did and what Bob did, the, I mean, this record sounds, the, the sonically, I think it is really amazing. Well, I mean, I tried to, sound-wise, as far as, like, band-wise, I didn't have a band, so... Um, I made sure that when I closed my eyes, I had a big green chair in the basement. I wanted to make sure when we recorded, it sounded like this guy was over here, this guy was over there. It sounded like a band. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't do it as a band because I, I couldn't afford the budget of doing it that way. So Jeff Kazee, who, played with, uh, who I played with with the Asbury Jukes, I did a little th- uh, maybe two-and-a-half-year stint with them. He played all the keyboards except for Rock and Roll Boys, which is Andy Burton, who played with Ian Hunter. And... Um, we did that out at a, at a studio out in Long Island, and uh, basically that I did. I think I did some vocals, uh, background vocals in the city at Joe Franco's studio. Um, but otherwise, every, all the vocals were done. The horns were done in Bob's studio in his basement studio. That was the Juke horns. And um, as far as using my guitars, it was so like it was ad lib. I mean, literally, I could sit there and go, "Nah, let me use the fifty three two ninety five or something." It was like that simple. So cool. Now, some people might have thought it was weird to use a click track, but like you said, that's the only way to record at this point. And let me tell you, I think it was a positive thing because I think that it truly sounds like a full band and the feel is there. And if you're not a musician, you may not understand this, but people will think that uh, having a click makes the song not have like a natural feel. I disagree with that. I think your stuff sounds like a band just jamming. Yeah, I mean, look, the click track thing, I had to play to one. I played to one. In other words, when we started the song, we'd be in my studio, hit the click track, and I would play guitar to this click track. So it was just a guitar and a click track. Then that would give the drummer something to play to. Then the click track was off. But, you know, what? I I mean, 
you know, we never thought that um, musicians that never said they do um, uh, jingles and commercials would do jingles. So rock and roll is not what it used to be anyway. It's just, you know, I just wanted to do a record, and this is the only way I could do the record. You know, I had to do it piecemeal. So I paid special attention to making the mixes sound like, you know, let's say Ronnie's over here and Keith is over here and the keyboard guy's over there and the horns are over there. And then the end result of this thing is um, I ran into um, Rob Fraboni, okay, famous producer um, and engineer and, you know, Keith's best friend back in the day. And he came up with this software called RealFeel, which basically scientifically, and, and you know, I'm probably saying this wrong, but it kind of takes the, the spaces out between the digital uh, numbers. And he heard my, I was at a lawyer's meeting and he walked in just by accident and he goes, well, he goes, what is this? I said, it's my record. He says, I want you to use my, um, my new software. And he's trying to, you know, he's trying to license it now. He said, I could talk about it. I just couldn't put it on the record. You know, I couldn't oh, write wow, it on the record. Right. So what it does is it doesn't make it sound any different, but it makes it feel different. Different. Also, if you turn my record up to 10, it doesn't, it still sounds great. Like sometimes with digital music, when you turn it up, it kind of starts to hurt your ears a little bit, gets a little annoying. I mean, the first bit I did in Nashville was on tape. But when we came to New York, I mean, you know, it's like either get this record done or don't do it. So we just did it the way we did it. And um, everything's real. I mean, we put it to an analog board to mix it and it's just recorded on a digital format. I mean, you know, what are you going to do? I think it sounds amazing. And literally, when I do some recording, I'm going to call you and ask you how to do it. Let's talk about some of the tunes. Rock and Roll Boys is the uh, lead track on the record. Great riff, great backup vocals. Now, who's on that tune? That's all me. I mean, the the story quickly behind that song is that was the last song I wrote. So record's already mixed. And um, I think for Christmas, somebody got me the Mata Hoople live DVD from their reunion. In, in, in London. And I listened to it and I said to myself, you know, the one thing I don't have is this particular beat. I mean, look, this is my record. I'm going to go out and play it live. I, I'm, I said to myself, I'm going to write a live record. You know, this is going to be stuff I can go out and play. And um, I, I specifically went for certain beats that I enjoy playing on stage, like all kind of below the waist thing, whether it's soul or, or straight up rock and roll. So I, I listened to the, I watched the Mott DVD and I said, um, you know, I'm missing this kind of you know so i came up with that riff and i started writing the song and then it's just turned into you know um it it turned into a tribute which is also on the liner notes you would understand a lot of this stuff i wrote this rock and roll boys is dedicated to mata hoople and all the other bands that helped me maneuver through my teenage years so you know the gist of it is i wrote basically my version of like a uh you know a mata hoople song that i would have listened to when i was a kid because um, I wanted to tip my hat to those guys, you know? I mean, I'm a guy that I went to see Mott in 73 at the Eurus Theater. Then we went to Max's Kansas City, which was a famous rock club in New York. We stood around the table. There was a big table they put all the rock stars in in the back. We stood around Mott the Hoople. They were all sitting there, and we stood there like 16-year-old kids. And 20 years old, 20 years later, I'm playing guitar for Ian. So I said, you know, I got to write, I got to write my story a little bit. So when I started writing the lyrics, I just started with 17, ready to play. I got, I got girls on my mind, rock and roll in my veins. And I it just went from there into like, ah, this, this is going to be my story of like me hanging out at Max's Kansas City. And that's what it became, you know, and I put those little 
like odd. I put a little odd uh, breakdown in it, you know, straight off like a Mott record, you know. And and Ian, I tried to get Ian to sing on on one part, and he was in the middle of his record, and he didn't have time to do it. But the vocals, the background vocals, are, are all me. So what we did is an old trick that they used to do. We would slow the music down, and I would sing the background vocals, and then speed it up so it makes it sound like higher pitched, yeah. and it doesn't sound like me doing both parts. Right. The lyrics really are like a story, and I felt like I knew what you were thinking back when you were 17. And that lead-off line is is amazing. 17, ready to play. I got girls on my mind, rock and roll in my veins. No getting, uh, no getting worried about the future. Going to be a big deal one day. When when you start out playing in a rock and roll band, you you either have that mentality that you're going to make it, or you're not going to go anywhere, or or you're not even going to make it to the next tier. In other words, you will give up. So when I was that kid, I had no, there was nothing else in my brain. Like I would stare at the inside of, of Rock and the Fillmore and say, I am going to do that. You know what I mean? And that's what that line is. It's almost like swagger, which I had at a, at a very early age. It's like, I am going to be one of these guys if it freaking kills me. So that's no getting worked up about the future, going to be a big deal one day. That's a cocky line that I had when I was that kid. And you almost have to have it. It's very cool, and it's amazing that the last song that you did wound up being like the, the lead-off track on the record. Well, yeah, I spent a lot of time on the order of this, and I actually have four or five songs left over that'll be on the next record that sound great. I just couldn't fit them. Um, I sat in that green chair again, and I just kept switching. That's the great thing about Pro Tools. Is I, it was just a matter of you know, flipping the songs on my iTunes, and just I kept listening to it all over and over again. And it turned out I wrote a kind of a New York record. Rock and Roll Boys is totally New York. Let's Get Gone is about, you know, being an older guy and still wanting to go out and kick some jam, kick out the jams a little bit, you know. Uh, and, and funny enough, that's the uh, – and, and that's all about, you know, there's this crazy little joint down on 2nd Street, you know, a uh, 7th Street, you know. It gets jumping real early. Don't you drag your feet, you know. The music's loud. They keep the lights down low. So grab you a cab. It's like New York, you know. Let's get in the, let's, like we're used to. But I'm not that kid anymore, so – you know, I have a family. I'm an adult. That's why I put that thing at the end. I love it where you say, I have a shot of your finest ice water. And a, a cranberry juice chaser. <laughs> well, the, I've been sober 26 years, right? Congratulations. So that's an inside, we call it, you know, playing to the band. You know, uh, he's playing to the band. It's like it's an in inside joke. Funny enough, the only review that I got out of 25 of them that was a little iffy was this British magazine. And she didn't get it. She thought it was cheesy. She didn't even talk about the music. She just said... Uh, you know, that, that thing where you hear the crowd, it's like, it's cheesy. And I'm like, uh, you don't even, you don't know me. I'm like an idiot. I'm like, like a New York clown. Right. So I did that on purpose. You know, it was just me saying, you know, I'm going out, but I don't drink anymore. You know, and the same thing at the beginning of one less love, I say, uh, uh, if I'm going to sing this, I need a Zeppelin, man. Okay. So I'm recording in my basement. I live in an Italian neighborhood. They had a feast and me and Bob went out and bought Zeppelin's. <laughs> Brought it back. We said they were on the kitchen table. We said, "Let's go do this vocal." Went downstairs. I'm about to sing, and I said that. Right. And I said, "You know what? It's, it sounds like Elvis, right?" It's great. I, if I'm gonna sing this, man, I need a Zeppelin. I said, Let's leave it, and that's it. Because I remember when I was a teenager listening to music, all of those little things that were on the records. If it was musical and it was a mistake, or, or they did something weird at the end, you know, when you played the church dance, you would do that, right? right? You would do the mistake. That's the stuff. That's what I'm talking about. It's just a, a love letter to the music I grew up on. Period. 
You know, I don't think that reviewer, the European reviewer, understood what it was like to live in New York, what it was like to be a musician back in the day, and how cool those little things are, and how people like you and me literally got the album, took out the sleeve, and looked at that dust cover and read every single word on that thing. And looked at all the photos. And then there's just understanding New York life, jumping in the cab and going down to the club. And it really is a New York record. I, I don't think they understood that. Maybe they were too young to understand it. I don't know if it was that. You know, it, it, maybe it's just British um, um, take on it. Well, I mean, you wouldn't know unless you knew that I was sober that that's what I did. Right. You know, why I, I put that there. But once again, it's like none of my business what other people think about me. Right. So I, it was. it's for me, man. I did it for me and anybody, you know, 12 million other sober people that might hear it and go, ah, that's funny. Give me a shot of your finest ice water and a cranberry juice chaser. It's a joke. Yeah, for no, I think it's great. I wrote that down. I thought it was cool. So let's go down the list a little bit. Yeah. Foolish Kind. Is that a mandolin at the beginning? Uh, no, that's just – that is a – I think it was uh, – you know what? When we started the record, I was really good at writing down which guitars I used on which thing, and then I kind of gave up. I think it was a 68 country and western Gibson um, uh, acoustic. Yeah, it's just capoed up. I think it's capoed up to the fourth fret. You know, I'm playing in uh, uh, A position. And that's that's all it is. It sounds really great. I I love the vibe of that song. Uh, Little Rod Stewart, I think. Well, I mean, it's a little bit like ooh la la, no? I mean, that's I was trying to make one of the – in my brain, I closed my eyes and I thought of myself playing it on top of the pops with a really stripped-down band. And I could just see that song. Fell in love with a brand. I mean, that's how I sing. My voice is all beat up. So, you got a great voice. Thank you. But um, once again, I, I, I swore I wouldn't edit myself on this, you know. And, and I started playing that riff. And, and it just came out, you know. And I said, yeah, it sounds a little like ooh la la, that kind of vibe. But who cares, you know. It doesn't Well, matter. I like that. No, I know. But, you know, the thing is. People shouldn't like like the music that's out today, right? You listen to Justin Timberlake's record or this this new controversy with uh, the Marvin Gaye song for Robin Thicke. People do that every minute. The only difference is I'm talking about it. Like I tried to like take an I, I was doing a nod to my heroes. You know, I mean, it doesn't sound it's nothing like ooh la la. It's just got got that kind of folksy feel. And in fact, a review that came out yesterday on allmusic.com said it had that, I think it said ramshackle Lonnie Lane feel. And I said, oh God, you just, that that was my, you made my day. Because that's the music that I love. Some people when they were 14 listened to Richie Blackmore. I mean, I liked Deep Purple back then too, but the music that got me was this kind of sloppy, drunken rock and roll. And even into American stuff like Cactus and, and, you know, but Humble Pie you know, the faces, but I also like the raspberries and, you know, I mean, it's all over the place, but it, it all kind of had that kind of, you know, crawling around at four o'clock in the morning kind of vibe to it, you know, it's, it's and awesome. that's what Foolish Kind is. It's just a strummy kind of fun song, you know? Absolutely. It's great. I want to go down to the next track, Ways of a Woman, and I, I really love that there's a line that pertains to this and the perfect person to be on that song was your daughter. Tell us yeah. about that. So uh, I'm in the basement and... um in the studio, um, and I'm recording, and we're at that point, and she was down, she was playing on the other side where, where the laundry room is, kind of, and she was running around and making noise, and, and I said, Frankie, I'm trying to record a vocal, and I did it a couple of times, and then I finally said, come here for a second, we were at this part where it says, um, we used to sit around, talk about children, that's what we did, and I said, when I say that, I want you to go, Dad, 
And then her friend said, dad, and then laugh. And they got it in one take. But the joke about it is uh, I said to Frankie, uh, I just want you to know you're not getting paid for this. And she turned to her friend and said, welcome to showbiz. That is classic. So Ways of a Woman was written uh, with Southside Johnny. When I played with South, I got him in to co-write. I I wrote about half the record by myself, and then I I pulled in some great writers to, you know, I'm not above, like, I know who could help me on what. So I'd rather have people help me than have the whole song. And, you know, if somebody adds to it, great. But um, Ways of a Woman was, I said to South, you know, I would come to him with um, uh, a riff and a melody. And I'd say, I wanted to have that kind of like 70s soul vibe to it. And that's what we came up with. And once again, you know, I'm not 25. So we wrote about, you know, uh, it wasn't so long ago, no one could shake the rafters like we did. You know, all night long, we'd laugh and love until we'd wake the neighbors. That's what we did. It's about, and then the next line is, uh, but now you say we're grownups. Uh, but now you say we're grownups and, um, oh my God, unless I'm singing the song, I can't remember <laughs> the lyrics. It's about growing up. You know, it's like I'm the same guy, but I'm a grown up, you know, so you got to adapt It's adapt or die. It's a good motto. I love it. The next track is called Wide Open. And I took notes on these tunes. I wrote amazing solo, powerful song. Yeah. um, Wide Open has been around. um, I wrote that probably in the early 90s. And I wrote that myself. And it's been cut by a couple of people. Uh, Chris Farlow cut it, actually. And... um, I re- I've recorded that song three times. I actually recorded it in the first batch of acoustic songs, uh, of songs I did in Nashville with Ray Kennedy. And I never quite, I'll probably release that acoustic version too, but I never quite got it the way I wanted it until we did it this time. And once again, when we got to, when it was finished and it would say, you know what, it would, it would make sense to put horns in this. And I said, but that would be too obvious. So I got, this guy came down and played strings on it. And I kind of orchestrated the string parts, and I literally wanted one of those old Andrew Lou Goldham kind of early stone string parts on it. Wide Open is is my, you know, Otis Redding, down on one knee, gold LeMay jacket ballad, you know? And um, it sounds great in the set. And as far as the guitar break, it's interesting because I'm playing in drop D tuning. So once I get down... You know, when I'm playing and I forget, I get down to the E string and I'm still playing like I'm regular E and it, it makes these weird kind of atonal uh, things. And also the actual chord pattern, it has the drop D. So that's why you can't figure it out sometimes. People can't figure it out. But um, the guitar solo, I went through a couple of different versions to figure out what I wanted to play. And then I just closed my eyes and went for it. You know, uh, funny enough, before I forget, the guitar breaks, I did a bunch of them. And then I went to see Jeff Beck at the Iridium. And I, I was sitting there right in front of him, and um, I was sitting next to Meatloaf. And I turned to him, and I said, dude, I just started crying. And he said, I broke down three times. <laughs> you know. Um, and I went back, and I did all the breaks again. And wow. if you listen to the – a lot of them are, are very structured, you know, not, not complicated, but I really – nothing is um, – uh, except for like Harlem Rose or something, I, I really put a lot of effort into making the guitar breaks a little tricky – uh, once again, not complicated, tricky, which means like when I was a kid and tried to figure out Jeff Beck guitar breaks, it never was what you thought it was. Right. And also, like if you played in a band and you did Honky Tonk Woman at, at a neighborhood high school or something, it never sounded like Keith. Why? Because he was in open tuning. What the hell did right. we know? Right. So what I did is I, I screwed about a bit and really played some, you, you know, strange, like no note. I didn't ne- like land on any note true. Everything is like bent up 
bent down, you know, coming at it from this angle, from that angle. And hopefully some, some people will try to figure them out and go, what the hell is he doing now? <laughs> it sounds great. And I remember seeing you play that live yeah. acoustically, maybe yeah. back at the cutting room gigs or something like yeah, that. It's been around a long time. I mean, I just, it's, it's probably the best song I've ever written. I mean, it's a great ballad if I do say so myself. In fact, Ian Hunter left me a message on my phone saying, um, love the record, great job. You could listen to it all the way through. Brilliant, wide open, my favorite song. He says, not nuts about the guitar break, though, he said. <laughs> and I thought it was great. I, I mean, I listened yeah, to the guitar I, break back, and it sounds like, uh, you know, unbridled insanity. You know, it's just like the notes I hit are just so I bizarre. love that guitar break. Thank you. That's kind of, you know, that's my Les Paul through a, you know, might have been the Blue Sparkle or, or um, I don't know. I'm not sure what I used on that, but it sounds like my Les Paul through a champ, you know, it just turned up, period. Speaking of your Les Pauls, was that one Les Paul you had? I think you told me the story. Did Pete Townsend give you a Les Paul? Yes. Uh, no, Roger Daltrey, when I did the um, Rogers record in 93 for my birthday at Abbey Road, he brought in one of those wine-colored um, three pickup yeah. guitars, but that's gone. It's it's. I finally dumped it. I remember you telling the story once before, but it's a very cool guitar. Yeah, it was great. I mean, you couldn't really play it. I used it on Roger's record. It was very heavy. Oh, wow. And it just, you know, it didn't sound as good as it looked. Right. I mean, I got some great sounding guitars. I mean, even I was just watching a YouTube thing on a gig that uh, my new band, the Skeleton Crew, by the way, Ricky Bird and the Skeleton Crew, we did in Philly. And um, I was doing Roland. We, we threw Roland and Tumbling in just so I could, you know, after Wide Open, actually. Wow. And um, I'm using an Epiphone Flying V. I'm, I, I, I started thinking about that this morning. I swear to God, going, I want one of those Karina Vs. Well, let me tell you something. I, I had this thing. As a guitar player, you get these Jones, Jones feelings, like, you know, I need this, I need that. Of course, I don't need anything because I have enough guitars. <laughs> but I wanted a Flying V all of a sudden. And everybody was like, oh, it's kind of medley. I'm saying, not on me, it's not. You know, I'm like, you know, I'm thinking Albert King. I'm not thinking, you know, Sh uh, Rudolf Schenker or anything. Right. So um, I actually talked to people over here at Gibson and, and, and they said, yeah, the custom shop one is like seven grand. Right. I'm like, what? <laughs> so I called a local guitar shop, a friend of mine, and I said, do you have any flying? Because I had a great Epiphone one. I said, well, let me hold it. And I came in, Karina, um, 500 bucks. Amazing. I bought it. I called you. You got me some Burst Bucker pickups. Yep. I changed all the electric in it, the electronics, and it sounds like a $7,000 Gibson. But I played it. If you watch this YouTube thing, dude, it sounds unbelievable. I mean, it's unbelievable. So all my guitars sound pretty good. I looked at a photo of you playing that this morning, and I was thinking, I got to get one of those now. <laughs> to me, that doesn't look like a metal guitar. That looks like a rock and roll guitar. No, because I don't look like a metal guy. I'm a rock and roll blues player. You know, I mean, it's the way you, I guess... That's what you grew up on. Yeah, no doubt. The next tune is a song that I think it's an absolute hit. I want to jam this. That's how much that I love this tune. Dream Big, it's called, and it's a huge hit. True. <laughs> if it was 1974, I'd have a huge hit right now. But um, Dream Big, once again, I was just, for this record, I was trying to come up with the riffs that I wanted to play live. And with me, songwriting always begins with me sitting on the couch with a guitar on my lap. And I wrote that riff, and I wanted it to be kind of like a um, like a Stonesy Faces kind of, you know, almost like a Hot Legs kind of feel with cool lyrics, you know. And um, it's all about 
it's like like there's one line that goes you got to aim high to fly which is true you know um so that's all it is it's sort of a, a drunken sailor riff um cool positive lyrics great vocals on it and um at the end i go crazy and i throw in you could actually hear the old young dudes riff i throw in there for a second and basically there's everything but the kitchen sink at the end and it ends abruptly and that's another thing you know it, it was a fade and we just kind of ended abruptly and i went huh, on the mic and i just went that's the end right abruptly because when you were a kid, when you heard stuff like that on the radio, it shook you, you know? So I wanted to leave it like that instead of fading the song out, you know? Right. And that's all it is. And I got to play some cool slide on it. And um, it's just a rock and roll song. It's got a good hook, though. It's got an amazing hook. And the instrumentation, I think, is great. Now, here's a funny thing. There's something that I always heard, and I never knew what it was, and I think it's called a vibra slap. Is there a vibra slap in that? Yes, there is. And once again, it was between the first and second verse. And I went up to Joe Franco's studio here in New York, and I said, do you have a vibra slap? And he said, yeah. I said, you're playing it. Cool. And when that part came, there was a space, and I said, you know what I hear in there? Yeah. I just, in my head, I heard it. So I said, well, let's put it in, you know? I mean, this dude, this cowbell on, um, is it on Dream Big? I think the cowbell might be, I can't remember which song it's, on. it's oh, kind of like odd beats, you know, it's not always on the two no, and the four. I a lot of reverb on it. Actually, I wanted it to sound like the cowbell on the Chambers Brothers' time has come today. So it goes, you know, you hit it, and it kind of, re it's kind of like, repeats. I can't remember what song it's on. No, maybe it is on, um, maybe it's on Dream Big at the beginning. But once again, it's like, when was the last song that had a cowbell on it? Right. You know, I said, like, let's use a cowbell. What's the difference? I, I love it. It's a little, little honky-tonk woman kind of a thing, and I, you know, I love that. I was trying to just play the stuff that I love. I'm not, I just didn't want to edit and say, Oh, this this feels like that, or that's like it's like who cares? I mean, really. I love that musicians, you listeners. If you're a musician, you're going to understand if you've ever recorded in the studio what Ricky meant by the fade out. Because what happens is you think you're going to fade out the song, so you just keep playing over and over again, and then eventually somebody just stops and everybody kind of abruptly stops. Right. But what's so cool is that you left that. Yeah, because when I listened back to it, it was just such a. It was like, you know, somebody stopping short in front of your car and you're hitting the brakes. I mean, that's what it does right there. And that vocal thing, that little like harumph I do, I, I just did it when I was singing the lead and it just all kind of worked together and I just left it. Very, very cool. The next track is called Harlem Rose. And the cool thing is that once again, we're talking about New York and there's a line where you say like something about my little Latin. Yeah, my little Latin delight. It's, yeah. it's Harlem Rose. I'm going uptown to see my, my Harlem Rose. And, you know, that's once again, I wanted like a, a Chuck Berry kind of feel for the record, you know, because it's amazing to play to play live. And, and that's what I do is that kind of music. So um, and the thing about that is if you listen to the drums, you know, most people play like Johnny Be Good wrong. They play a straight 4-4 four, four beat. Right. I had him play Sean Murray, the drummer on the record, played like a half swing beat, which is really how the Chuck Berry songs went that's on most of them. Right. Yeah. So I was very specific about. When we when we recorded it to have that kind of um, shuffly feel with me playing and him going kind of feel. Also, the bass parts, you know, when Bob, who played bass on the record, Bob Stander, co-producer, he started doing like a regular eighth note beat. And I went, no, 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 like an NRBQ kind of just real old school, like you're playing a Willie Dixon stand up bass, you know, and that's what it comes out like. And that's what that song is. And I think I played some. Pretty cool guitar on that song. Real kind of chicken picking stuff. 
without a doubt. The next track, it's called Married Man. And what I love about this is the horn section is great. And I love hearing the organ in the song. That was my first instrument was organ. I had a Hammond home style console thing. And I'm glad to hear somebody putting an organ in a song again. Well, there's things that I love, you know, once again, since, it, you know, this was my, um, I, I was paying the check, like I put stuff on, like Hammond B3s, electric pianos, honky-tonk pianos, horn sections. I mean, I love that stuff. I mean, I used to go see Edgar Winter's White Trash all the time, and they were one of my favorite bands. And like, you know, you listen to that old Humble Pie stuff when Steve was playing the B3 or, you know, any of that really great Leon Russell stuff. It just, it floors me. So I wanted it to make sure, like, I don't know how many records I'm going to do. Like, I wanted to put everything that I wanted on it, you know? Um, I, oh, I, you know what? Before I forget, Turnstile is the only song, the final song on the record that was recorded in Nashville. That oh, was, okay. That's from the first batch. But, um, I, yeah, I put that on there. And because um, he played all of the, 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 um, the B3 on the record. I think Andy played, if there's B3 on um, Rock and Roll Boys, that would be Andy, if I'm not mistaken. Andy Burton, but everything else is that, and um, Married Man, right, so I wanted an Otis Redding feel with fun lyrics. Yeah, the lyrics are great. It wasn't your fault, really. You were seduced. The deal about that song is, first, musically, I, I wanted to have, like I said, a, like an Otis Redding feel, like Mustang Sally, or, or you know, which is an Otis, Otis, but that old Memphis with the horns kind of thing but I, I wanted to write lyrics that were you know fun so um, right when I wrote that song there were a bunch of and it's funny because he's back in the spotlight again is Spitzer there were a, cu a couple of really public indiscretions by politicians who think they're too big to get caught doing stuff you know so basically that song is, is basically about blowjobs don't count Right. That's so fun. That, that's basically what that's about. So this guy is like he's 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 talking to his lady and he's and he says, you know, I throw myself on your mercy. You know, I come to you on bended knee. Um, uh, I throw myself on your mercy. I come to you on bended knee. Baby, won't you listen? Sure, I made the wrong decision, but the girl took advantage of me. That, that's the line. That's good. So and I'm thinking one because I, I swear I told her one kiss only one kiss only. I'm a married man. In other words, some things don't really count as cheating. <laughs> That's such a great tune. Now, listen to the break on that, the slide break. Um, I didn't know what kind of break to do. No matter what I tried, it sounded goofy. And I tried playing slide in it, but it's a, I played like an old kind of blues recorded strange, you know, if you listen to it, it's just an odd slide break. And then we go into this other chord pattern. And I, I, I got the best wah sound of my life. You know, and I just happened to hit the perfect, there's one or two notes that I hit the wah at right at the right spot where it just sounds like, like a cream or something. It's like, just and just like at the right spot. It's great. And the next tune, we're going to come back to one of your, the stories in One Less Love. That's the one where at the beginning you have the Zeppeli line before you did the vocal. And tell us a little bit about how that song came together, the whole tune. I started. I came up with the riff when I was in Nashville, uh, and I was writing with um, Ray Kennedy. He co-wrote that with me, and also Richie Supa, uh, who co-wrote a lot of Aerosmith hits, like um, uh, "Amazing," "Trip Away the Stone." So he's like an old friend of mine. And I, once again, I always come in with the chords and the um, the arrangement, and you know, which is always tweaked at the end, and the melodies for that song. 
I I came up with a um, I wanted to have a real cool 50s. Once again, I'm very visual. So I closed my eyes and I could see on American Bandstand, which I used to watch every week when I was a kid. And once again, going back to the beginning of this interview, when I was 14, that was the one of the only places you could see the, the, your favorite bands. Like every week, Dick Clark had somebody cool on the show. Could have been a soul like Wilson Pickett or it could have been whoever had a hit. Could have been the Kinks. But they used to do this thing called the stroll where all of the dancers, would, all of the people that were in the audience would line up facing each other, and then the couples would come down wow. doing this kind of, it was like this kind of stroll beat. Well, that's how I wrote One Less Love. I wanted that beat. It's a very Sam Cooke kind of feel. And, um, and the lyrics just started, you know, it just, with me, it just starts with one line. Perfume on your pillow, on my pillow, you know. It's, it's like, that's you're, it. you're not there anymore, but, you know, I still smell you. But the idea is, he, now he's being, he misses her, but he's saying one less love, you know. Like, I, I'm better with one less love, you know. Fine. Now I don't have to worry about that. You know. You're right. That uh, lyric "perfume on your pillow" is really powerful, and it really hit me too when I listened to it. Okay, two more tunes on the album. Things to learn. That is really wild because it has like a a wild beginning that you kind of I wasn't sure where it was going, and then it all fits together. Right. So what happened? Okay. So we I think we did this. We did the song first, and once again, what I wanted on that song was a kind of I wrote that with Southside. And I wanted it to be kind of a small faces feel to it, like a 60s, you know, kind of vibe with cool, vo- even, you know, the, the back, the backgrounds, the, the chorus and everything is kind of um, Motown-y. I got things to learn about, love you, darling. You know, almost Temptations with them doing the back, with them, it's me, doing the backgrounds and then me going, I got things, you know, kind of like riffing. Um, so the song's recorded, and then I don't know what I said. You know, let me try some stuff at the front. Yeah, that and was basically, cool. Basically, I plugged the Y in, and I just got this unbelievable sound. Like, it's just a wah-wah pedal. Wow. I just happened to get that sound. I was wondering what it was, and then it all makes sense. Yeah, and by the way, that, that's an acoustic guitar when it comes in. That's not electric. Wow. I was trying to use – I always remember that the Stones used to say – Keith used to talk about like how they would plug an acoustic – through um mic it through an amp no the, he would plug the acoustic into an amp and then mic the amp wow. and get this weird little you know this weird little sound and that's what that is it sounds it's brash almost you know very cool very cool and then last track on the record is the one that you recorded in nashville turnstile 01 when i think of turnstile i think of you taking the train somewhere yeah hence the, that's the point um i wrote that um two weeks after september 11th hence the 01. And um, the crowd sound that you hear at the beginning was actually me down in Union Square Park with a little Sony tape recorder two weeks after. Just turning it on, I just wanted to get the sounds and capture what the city was going through at that point. That's why you hear sirens in the back and people kind of frantic and this and that. And um, basically, I wrote the, uh, you know, uh, like everybody was writing a song for September 11th. A lot of stuff was patriotic um, I didn't even want to touch on that because, I mean, you got to have a certain writing style. Otherwise, it's, it's, it's um, uh, cliched and, and kind of um, hack sounding. So I wrote about my city. You know, they, they hit my city. So I wrote about the love for my city. And I wrote about the love for my city, the skyline, this and that. But it's also about meeting a girl you're in love with down by the turnstile. Just to get that feeling of New York City, like a hot summer night, you know, that damn city air. You know, that's it's, it's a line in the bridge. 
and just jumping. You could see me like kind of jumping down the steps, like to in a hurry to meet this girl who's meeting me at a certain uh, station. And um, as I jump on the six, you know, I say in there, the six is a train, Lexington Avenue line. And, um, and I would take that up to Yankee Stadium and the four. So uh, I just, that's what I wrote. So I wrote the chords and I might have had, no, I had the chords and the melody and I took it to Nashville with me on my first trip. And or, or maybe the second trip. It was in November of 2001. And I was working on a vocal for something else. And the mic broke. And Ray was said, give me, give me half an hour. And he took the mic into the other room and started taking it apart. I sat in the control. I sat in the um, in, in similar to where we are now in the in the amp room. And I sat on the floor with a pad and pencil and, and an acoustic guitar. And I and I started playing it. And I just went, I can't get enough of the city, you know. With all my complaining, my feet hit the concrete, it's home. And, I, and the hair went up on my arms. I said, whoa, that's what I'm going to write about. And I went inside and read it to him, and I, started, I broke down and cried. And that was the first time I cried since the attacks. Wow. Right? And, um, and that's how that song progressed. It was all about, I almost had to get out. We were so brave here in New York that a lot of us didn't let it out. Right. But once I got out of the city and I got to a place where it was dead quiet and, you know, birds tweeting and, and just normalcy, that's when my whole body just kind of like collapsed. And um, I sat with Ray and we started picking at it, you know, and even the chord changes are kind of disturbing at the beginning. You know, it's not a normal, I go down a half a step on the, on the, on the vocal uh, at the beginning, the chord changes, it goes from a, a C to a, a B, which is an interesting thing to sing over. I would never usually write it, but I felt disturbed, you know, and, and the chorus is just a, a good, it's just a New York so song. And I got to sing that song. I've done a lot of work um, for uh, Engine 16, Ladder 7 on 29th Street, which is, when we lived in the city, that was our fire department. And, and I went over there the, the day after with Carol, my wife, and we brought like trays of lasagna that she made for the guys. They lost eight guys there. And over the, over the years, I've be, they've adopted me. And I've, you know, they gave me this wonderful plaque last year about wow. the stuff I've done. And we did it at a benefit on the 10th anniversary, and it was for all the firefighters. There were about 300, 400 people there, and um, they sang. Um, I sang that on stage acoustic, and it's interesting because it was at the cutting room, and it wasn't ready yet, the cutting room. So they didn't even have real lighting, so it was very stark kind of Bob Dylan video lighting. Wow. And I was standing there with my J200, and I sang that song while they showed – Next to me, to my left, pictures of the, the firefighters that didn't make it. So in my mind, I said, just don't look at it. Just look straight ahead. And I saw people weeping as I was singing that song. And I did that song, and I did I'll Remember You by Dylan. i got to chill now as I'm talking about it. So that's how I ended the record. I thought it was the perfect song to end the record. And between Rock and Roll Boys starting the record and Turnstile ending the record, you know where I'm from. Without a doubt, Ricky. This is uh, a great, great solo record. The title is Lifer, and you are a lifer, lifelong rock and roll. Yeah, I've been doing it a while, you know? And it's like, uh, I mean, what am I, what am I facing? There's no music business, not for somebody like me, you know? Um, most of the glory days for people that, you know, I, I Love Rock and Roll was 1983, so will I ever see that again? Who the hell knows? I, you know, anything could happen. But 
I just want to play and I'd be a musician, you know, which is almost full circle to where you started. Right. And um, th so there's, there's, it's, it's impossible to sell records. You have to actually, live is so important now having a band because that's really where you sell most of the records. I mean, people, it's so hard to get people to go to Amazon or, or you know, unless you have a machine behind you and they don't care about, uh, they care about the giant, um, you know, t Timberlakes and, and, and One Direction stuff and, Robin Thicke, you know, it's for rock and roll people. It's such a hard business now. But with that said, I, I, I paid for my record myself and I, it didn't cost as much as it used to cost when we used to do the Blackheart record. So my profit margin is high. I knew that I had to sell records and merch um, live. So what I did is I put together a band. I used Sean from uh, Sean Murray, who played on the record and, a, and a, a New York cat named Scarlett Rowe, who played bass. I know Scarlett. Yeah, he was, he's like a Ronnie Lane, you know, love lover. And that's what I wanted. And um, I said, let's, let's do a three-piece, you know, and, and take it. Let's, that's the, first of all, that's the only way you can afford to do it. So where did the name come, come from? Um, I was doing an interview with a guy named Dave Bar Marsh, a famous uh, rock writer. And I, it was on a Sunday, and I went up to his uh, office, which was in a building on 6th Avenue, and it was, there was, like, nobody there. And there was one lady at security, and I, had, I brought my guitar to play live. And I, she took it and she put it through, you know, she checked my ID and then she said, come with me. And I, we put it through the x-ray machine. And I said to her, wow, you're, you're both people, huh? There's nobody here. It's, it's a, you're the skeleton crew. And I just went, hmm, the skeleton crew, <laughs> you know, and, and that, be, that was it. That was the name of the band, Ricky Bird and the Skeleton Crew. And there's only three of us. Right. And uh, we just played our first two gigs, one in Philly, one in um, New York City. And we're playing in Philly at the place called The Grape Room on uh, August 29th. And, and we're going to be playing at the Seabees Festival in New York. That's our first gig in New York City on October 11th at a club here in New York City. They're, they're making arrangements for what club. And that's it. I mean, basically, I'm, I'm, I'm like a, a street performer now. You know, I'm just, I just want to play. And I'm going to go out and play acoustic, too. You know, that's what's good about this record is I could, I, I've, been, I've been fooling around, like, in my den sitting on the couch. I could play Rock and Roll Boys on acoustic, you know. Very cool. I can't play Dream Big on acoustic, but I can play Rock and Roll Boys. And uh, I'm just, I just want to go out there and play. I don't care if it's a club, a shed, a, a theater, a, you know, whatever. I'll, I'll be smiling either way. Well, we'll be at the gigs. And the most important thing I want to know, and I want all the listeners today to know where to go to buy this record. Because please support Ricky, support the artists you hear on Talking Rock, and go buy this album. You will not be disappointed. Yeah, you just go to uh, www.rickybird.com, R-I-C-K-Y-B-Y-R-D, and um, you could actually, it's a fun website. You could see a bunch of pictures, and also you could read all the reviews I've been getting, and you could hear a bit of the record on there, and it also leads you to iTunes and Amazon, or uh, if you buy it from me, I will send you a signed copy with some fun little stuff inside, extra swag, and um, basically... You know, if if you ever got laid listening to I Love Rock and Roll, buy my freaking record. You owe me. <laughs> Absolutely. Here's a, another thing, guys. You want to buy the actual physical record, the CD, because there are cool liner notes. There's a ton of pictures. Ricky took a lot of time to put this together. And for all of us who remember what it was like to get a new album when we were kids, this is part of the experience. Yeah, that's it. I just put together a record that um, I would want to listen to when I was a kid. And I think I've achieved that. And my job is only to do the record and, and, and the rest of it's a lot of hard work and we'll see what happens. But I, I have a great record to go out and play, that's for sure. Well, Ricky, thanks so much for taking the time to hang out with Talking Rock and we really appreciate it. Thanks, man. Bless you. 
couldn't stay I'm asleep no more It's hard to let go when you're sure You found someone I know I'll never understand How quickly your heart's changing hands From my arms to another man's With no regrets I leave myself Wide open When will I learn You just don't give me Love in return Without a doubt That was a little sound sample from Ricky Bird's album Lifer called Wide Open. Wide Open is a track that has been around for a while, and I remember Ricky playing it acoustically by himself at various clubs, and just a great, great track. Uh, Guys, we're only playing sound samples on this because we want you to go out and support the artists you hear on Talking Rock. We're going to put a link up to the CD in today's show notes. It'll take you over to Ricky's site. And uh, you can buy the CD right there. Guys, please support what Ricky does, what all the musicians that you hear on this podcast do by purchasing their music legally. Absolutely. Yeah, I want to thank Carol Kay for setting this interview up. And I uh, want to thank the Gibson Guitar Showroom, uh, Jim Felber, who allowed us to use Studio 6, the famous Studio 6, where we did all of the talking metal jams, except the, the first ever one. <laughs> which we did at Bumblefoot's house. But great room, a lot of history there. It was really cool to sit on two stools in front of a drum kit in a very famous studio to do this interview with Ricky. It was only fitting. You know who's playing in Ricky's band? Do you remember a guy named Scarlet Rowe? I can't say that I do, but that doesn't mean anything. He, I believe, was in Joker 5-speed. Remember they played with us at that VH1 benefit we did at the Knitting Factory? Yeah, I definitely remember Joker 5-speed for sure. 
And I think Scarlett was associated with KG for a while. Mm. I think they might have been dating. That rings a bell, yes. <laughs> anyway, little little history there, little history for you guys. So why don't we hear another sound sample, then we'll come back, close it up, and then play some more music. Perfect. Okay, this is a track that, as you heard in the interview, I and anybody who really listens to this track thinks that it is a super, super hit. And the song is called Dream Big from Lifer by Ricky Bird. was Dream Big from Lifer by Ricky Bird, and John uh, sent me that, that track earlier today, and I've been listening to it. It sounds great. I really like that track a lot. Why don't we end with a little classic Ricky Bird going way back? Absolutely. This is a song that, believe it or not, was a cover uh, written by a guy named Alan Merrill, who I also used to hang out with. Uh, great guy. It's the song that you've heard a million times, I Love Rock and Roll, by Joan Jett featuring Ricky Bird.
Hulu Plus is a great way to binge watch your favorite shows. Hulu Plus has tons of episodes from comedies like SNL, Community, Modern Family, South Park, Family Guy, and thousands of other shows. Hulu Plus is only $7.99 a month. That's $7.99 for all the shows and movies you can watch. Catch up on current shows, binge on an old favorite, or catch a great movie. You can do it all on Hulu Plus. Right now, you can try Hulu Plus for a couple weeks for free on us. When you go to Hulu Plus forward slash metal, or when you go to TalkingMetal.com and click on the Hulu Plus banner. Please make sure you use HuluPlus.com forward slash metal so you get an extended free trial and so they know that we sent you. It helps us keep the lights on and give you a better deal. One more time for the extended free trial, it's HuluPlus.com forward slash metal. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.